A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, WAG listeners, it's Allison, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Candleland supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canadaland shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes from some of our podcasts. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. For $2 a month, you can become a supporter and do your part to ensure we can continue making this show. And we really like making this show for you. Basically nothing costs $2 anymore. You could like get a bag of candy, a locker at a public swimming pool. I've been honestly trying to think of something that cheap and I'm not getting far. So sign up for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. I'm faced with the decision about whether to uh, honor your landlord's request for an eviction because you're unable to pay your back rent. Or do we try and preserve your tenancy, but you still need to come up with some way to pay the outstanding debt? So my question to you is, how much are you willing to sacrifice in order to maintain your tenancy? Failing that, failing that, how much time would you need to move out? Yeah, but where are we going to go? Like, if I didn't want to pay rent, I wouldn't have been paying since July. Like, you know, I wouldn't have been paying for four years. Like, you know, everybody needs a home, right? Where There's no place else to go. What, what, I don't understand what you're saying. Like, you just say, if you don't, if you don't pay it, you're like, like I pay $2,100 a month rent. Like, I'm doing everything I can to preserve that. And the only reason I'm not paying it is because of COVID in April, May, and June. And then as soon as I was able to get that together, I paid July 1st. So I am not showing that I'm trying to be delinquent or I'm not. And I've never had any problems with this building. There's nothing against us in any way. And we are excellent tenants and we always pay on time. So the only reason for this is because we are in a pandemic right now. At the beginning of November, thanks to the pandemic, Ontario's Landlord and Tenant Board hearings went online. What you just heard was a recent hearing where a government-appointed adjudicator threatened a single mother with eviction because she can't afford to repay rent arrears that she accrued while she was laid off for a few months during the pandemic on top of her regular rent of $2,100 a month. But that order, and far too many like it, would seem to directly contradict what Premier Doug Ford unambiguously declared to Ontarians back when the pandemic first hit in March. If you've lost your job, and again, if you can't put food on the table, uh, we pass legislation that you can't be evicted. And some people have this misnomer, and and in some cases they're they're large corporations, but in in a lot of cases, uh, the landlords are, this is what they rely on the people's rent to, you know, pay their bills as well. So I highly recommend communicate uh, 
with your landlord, uh, work with your landlord, and and do the very best. And and landlords are are going to have to work with the the tenants as well. It's a it's a very very difficult uh, situation. But people uh, will not be evicted, and uh, you just can't throw people out on the streets and in, in these these terrible terrible times and these crises. In this episode, we're going to look at how we got from those comments by Doug Ford to the landlord and tenant board holding hundreds of eviction hearings a day in the middle of a pandemic and right as the province heads into winter. Ontario may be open for business, but when it comes to keeping a roof over your head, no promises. I'm Allison Smith, publisher of Queen's Park Today, and my landlord has been promising to replace my building's roof for five years because the ceiling leaks almost every time it rains. He still has not. And I'm Jonathan Goldsby, news editor at Candleland, and come to think of it, a former landlord still owes me some money from a settlement at the Landlord and Tenant Board a, a few years ago. And this is Wag the Doug. A monthly podcast about Doug Ford. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Like the environment and policing and most things other than health and education, I guess, housing is one of those crucial matters of provincial jurisdiction that a provincial government can often escape accountability for simply by not talking about it too much. In our August episode, we did briefly talk about Bill 184. That's the rental legislation that Doug Ford government passed this summer. If you recall, the bill was introduced right before the pandemic really kicked off at the beginning of March. And while it shifted some regulations more in favor of landlords than tenants, it wasn't super drastic and it didn't cause a really big stir at first. Like it wasn't quite evidently apocalyptic, at least by the low bar of the existing laws and systems and the degree of horrific irony you'd expect from a bill with the trollishly insincere title, the Protecting Tenants and Strengthening Community Housing Act. But it did bring a series of tweaks to Ontario's Residential Tenancies Act, the potentially devastating implications of which only gradually started to become clear. And those were compounded by further amendments to the bill that the PCs slipped in over the summer with the apparently specific purpose of making it easier to evict tenants who had been unable to pay rent because of COVID. They added language so that when there is a hearing to evict a tenant due to arrears arising at least partly since March 17th, so the COVID period, the board has to, quote, consider whether the landlord has attempted to negotiate an agreement with the tenant, including terms of payment for the tenant's arrears. Now, if the entire system were constituted differently, that could have the meaning that a landlord has to try to come to some sort of compromise with the tenant before they're allowed to apply for eviction. That seems reasonable. But in reality, 
What that usually means is that a tenant's reluctance or refusal to consent to any repayment plan that's been offered up, regardless of whether it's reasonable, can end up counting against the tenant when it comes time for an eviction hearing. When that's read in conjunction with other amendments the government was already planning to put in pre-COVID, a potential effect is that if a tenant does agree to a payment plan and then fails to live up to its terms, that violation could be seen as the equivalent of breaching an agreement that the board itself had mediated. And if a tenant breaches one of those, well, the board can order an eviction hearing without notifying the tenant in advance, let alone allowing them to present their side of the story at a hearing. So these changes came into place despite Doug Ford's own assurances that the pandemic wouldn't result in evictions. And his housing minister, Steve Clark, saying that Bill 84 would, quote, help keep people in their homes. So fast forward to mid-December, where we are now, the brief evictions moratorium, which the PCs put in place from mid-March through the end of July, it's lifted and the LTB is back in action online. The board is plowing through an absolute mass of hearings every day. Multiple blocks of hearings happen simultaneously over Microsoft Teams, and some evictions are being ordered in 60 seconds or less. Microsoft Teams is like Zoom for bureaucracies, if that's not redundant. And it's definitely neat when judicial, or in this case quasi-judicial, processes are opened up to a whole new audiences of observers. Thanks to Microsoft Teams, I didn't have to trek to Nairobi this past fall to watch Kenya's magistrate court in action. And similarly, you don't need to head over to, say, Young and St. Clair to follow the daily proceedings of Ontario's landlord and tenant board. So a big reason we know what's happening at these hearings right now is not just because they're online, but it's also thanks to a handful of Twitter accounts, the two of the main ones being Keep Your Rent Toronto and People's Defense Toronto, which have been live tweeting the proceedings and publishing video clips of some of the most egregious incidents. One of those that went fairly viral on Twitter was a video of a hearing where a landlord informed the adjudicator that her tenant had died in October, and the adjudicator just doesn't seem to listen and just keeps asking whether or not the tenant is on the line. Is the tenant on the line or anyone here representing the tenant? Um, he died on October 5th. Okay, Ms. Wu, I'm not talking to you right now, okay, so I'm asking if the tenant's on the line. Oh, sorry. All right, it's now 11.49 a.m. The tenant has not called in or dialed into the hearing, despite receiving notice of today's hearing by the board. So we're going to proceed in the tenant's absence. So here is a recent clip of uh, adjudicator Shannon Keekins ordering a tenant to pay about 4500 in arrears, plus December rent. If you're not at a zero balance by December 31st, the landlord would have the ability to go to the sheriff. I mean, the question is, who in the best of times has, has, has suddenly has $5,000 or so to come up with on the spot? Plus another month. Yeah, let alone someone who might find themselves in the situation before the landlord and tenant board. I think the large sum of money in question, plus the curtness of the adjudicator here, helped this clip and, you know, some of the other ones we already played start circulating a lot online. And it seems like since that happened, the landlord-tenant board is trying to clamp down on the posting of these hearings. The People's Defense TO account, it recently tweeted a pair of letters it received from Tribunals Ontario, which ordered it to stop publishing audio and video from the hearings, citing the Landlord and Tenant Board's rule that a party isn't allowed to make a recording of a hearing without prior permission. They also threatened to take steps to have the unauthorized recordings removed from Twitter or other social media platforms. The LTB has sort of started shifting public observers away from these Microsoft Teams video meetings as well. 
But because the board has still has to adhere to at least a semblance of an open court principle, those wishing to observe a hearing are directed to call into a phone conferencing line instead. That theoretically mitigates this possibility for disruptions, but it also not surprisingly makes the proceedings even more difficult to follow. And with all the, the feedback you can hear, you sometimes aren't sure if, that you aren't listening to Plantasia, that 1970s electronic album of experimental synthesizer music designed for the comfort and stimulation of plants, except more dissonant. We decided to talk to tenant activists Brian Doherty and Sam Nithianathan, who have both been tracking the hearings and organizing tenants to push back against evictions. Brian is with uh, Keep Your Rent Toronto, and Sam is with People's Defense Toronto. So since the landlord and tenant hearings have gone digital recently, how are they different than tenant hearings that were held, you know, pre-COVID in person? I think in in some ways not much different at all, frankly. Um, I think one of the most important differences is that more people are, one, interested in what it is that's going on and to able to actually see what happens at the LTB. Like, the phrase like eviction factory wasn't coined in response to COVID. That was how journalists when they chose to and tried to cover the eviction processes uh, and and how stacked the tribunal is against tenants, that they've been referring to it as an eviction factory for like years before this. Now, you stack COVID on top of anything that was already bad and everyone understands it to be worse. The other thing is, is I think more people feel implicated or potentially lumped in as though it could be them because of COVID. I think that whole, we are all in this together kind of claptrap that politicians and businesses were pushing at the beginning of this is something that actually is, it like does resonate with like working class people. Like they've started to see this as a fully collective process, which it always was. It was just always concealed. And now it's more apparent to be affecting the numbers of people that it's affecting. It's also happening at a much faster pace. There are upwards of, I think, like 7,000 hearings, eviction hearings in one month, which would have been next to impossible before it went online. But streamlining the LTB is something that the Tories have been pursuing since they took office. They might have used COVID as an opportunity, but the bills that they were passing the restaffing that they were doing of the membership of the LTB was stuff that they were pursuing well before people started t- complaining about toilet paper shortages. One that, that has been a, a real shift is now you have an adjudicator from Cornwall uh, adjudicating on matters from Toronto, from Ottawa and from Hamilton. No understanding of what's actually happened in the city. But what it's also allowed in, in especially in, in organized neighborhoods now, now it's, it's spreading all across that like people don't have to show up these things by themselves anymore. Today, in, in one of those hearings, I think there was uh, 40 people from uh, a single neighborhood in there watching what's happening and, and intervening as well. People understand this is going to come for them at some point. Uh, tens of thousands of people in these buildings have lost their jobs, uh, and they know that at some point the, the, it's, it's going to bite them too. So there, there is a, a collectivity that's forming out of this. Now, the LTB is trying to shift that as they've been shifting policies on a, a rapid basis of pushing people out so they won't be able to see these things. But for, for ourselves and in, in, in neighborhoods, uh, now communities don't have to take a day off work to trek it over. Uh, they're sitting there on their computers uh, if they're working from home, if they don't have, uh, have work, whatever it is, if they're at work, uh, and watching these things and intervening. Um, and I don't think the LTB was expecting that to happen. 
One thing I found striking from your Twitter accounts is the use of language that the adjudicators employ during the hearings. Like it seems particularly harsh. A lot of um, if you pay your rent a day later, a dollar short, you're out. Is that commonplace? Or can you just speak a bit about how the adjudicators speak, talk to the tenants during the hearings? First line of day late, dollar short, that's not even language from the, the landlord tenant board of adjudicators. That's not policy. They're, they're telling them the honest truth. And that's what uh, 47% of the city who are renters have been left with. In terms of the other language that you hear, today there was a, a hearing uh, where it was an immunocompromised father of three. He just had a kid, and he was in the hospital, and, and I think we were putting it on our Twitter, but uh, the adjudicator was calling tenants in there hooligans because they were saying he sh- he's not at the hearing. Why would you run this thing? Any tenant that's ever been at the LTB knows what's up at the LTB. Why do you think there has been over the years a misconception that it's a tenant-friendly process? That's not the misconception. The misconception that is pushed by landlord spokespeople and even within the press is that the LTB is stacked against landlords. It's not just that there's confusion. There is deliberate mischaracterization of what takes place at the LTB. And it's deliberately pushed with an agenda to streamline the LTB to be stacked even further in favor of landlords. I think that there is a real push from lobbyists and advocates uh, from landlord and real estate, um, as well as like stacking the LTB membership from the like once the Tories took office, inserting former lawyers for landlords into membership of the LTB to be adjudicators, current landlords as adjudicators, and also a mass exodus of adjudicators because they were feeling the pressure from above and they moved on to somewhere else. If they were too friendly to tenants, they knew that there was no place for them. I noticed that you had pointed out conflict of interest between adjudicators and the lawyers that have appeared on behalf of landlords. Can you speak to that a bit? The adjudicator that I think you're you're talking about is Shannon Keekins, and she works for a a law firm called Cohen Hiley out of London, and they're a pro-landlord law firm. They advertise themselves as that. They are the the go-to law firm for the Federation of Residential Property Owners, and she was a paralegal there up until May. And then she jumped onto the landlord tenant board. Two weeks ago, she was supposed to adjudicate on a, a hearing, and it was her senior partner who was on the other side of it. Because Pinedale Properties, the property management for Crescent Town, had brought in this law firm to crush tenant organizing, and that's what Cohen Hiley does. And she was sitting there, and she recused herself, but then put an interim order in before she did. What's more you know, interesting with that is that a week before that, she was sitting at a hearing where uh, she was the one who filed the eviction orders. In May. And she was presiding over that hearing? She was supposed to preside over it, and she recused herself. Still, the fact that it was assigned to her is surprising. The fact that she's even an adjudicator after working for a law firm that prides itself in breaking tenant organizing, evicting tenants out, and and that significant conflict of interest where, you know, you have landlords now sitting as adjudicators. There's a misconception that these are somehow trained judges who have 10 years of, of experience and they're hired to that way. None of that's true. I think they've got a dentist sitting there now. I'm sort of trying to wrap my head around the mechanics of the law and the change that was made because they, they added in language like basically you can have a hearing without giving notice to the tenant an ex parte hearing. Uh, previously, it was only if there had been an alleged violation of 
a board mediated settlement essentially or if there had been some sort of order already and they added in the phrase i think other dispute resolution process so if there's been a violation of a of a mediated settlement or another dispute resolution process then this type of hearing can go could go ahead that other dispute resolution process that has come to include like rent repayment plan type negotiations or negotiations or the conversations between landlords and tenants is that what that expanded to encompass effectively I think that's the incentive. Another component that they want is to pull back from enforcement of evictions and removal of tenants by public sector workers and by like sheriffs at all. Like what they would like to see is that after an order comes from the LTB for removal at the landlord's discretion, they can hire whichever IntelliGuard or private security they, they might like to go run through their buildings and start dragging people out. And the ambiguity seems to be largely able to be interpreted in a way that would be very hazardous to tenants. Um, um, so potentially, potentially a, a private um, repayment agreement that maybe you you felt pressured into or more confident when you signed it um, between you and your landlord. If you fail to meet those conditions, potentially um, the landlord could just file for an ex parte, uh, no hearing, eviction, removal because an agreement was made and it was breached. I also think like with this question of, of 78, it's like previously you go to the landlord tenant board, they'll slap you with the 78, nothing new on that that part of it. Now with these repayment plans, landlords can do that. Uh, whatever these repayment plans set are, are set up and, and out in you know these East End neighborhoods, what we were seeing as early as April, Pinedale Properties, their their property manager was going around with a, a debit machine banging on people's doors to force them to pay. Many people paid on their credit card uh, in the, the, the height of the pandemic, uh, not knowing where their, their next paycheck is going to come from. There was property managers who were telling newcomers and immigrants that if they don't pay their rent, they'll be taken to the landlord-tenant board and that can lead to deportations. Now, these are the people who are going to, what, negotiate? fair repayment plans who now have the ability to evict people at, at, at a whim because you don't have to go back to the landlord-tenant board after these repayment plans are signed. Like the landlord-tenant board has been uh, the, the shit show that it is, but landlords have a lot more power now. And, and some of these repayment plans, you know, they're $1,000 on top of your everyday rent. Or somebody I was talking to the other day, you know, a single mother of two uh, lost her husband in January, uh, lost her job in March. And the repayment plan that uh, was put onto her was $1,000 on top of $1,500, $2,500. She's down to four hours of, of work at Mickey D's right now. So can you explain to our listeners the process if a tenant doesn't meet a repayment agreement, their, their landlord now has the power to evict them themselves. So can you tell us like the situation of, of, of who comes and evicts them, the people, how long they have, like that sort of process? No tenant actually sees a hearing before an eviction. The threat of a hearing is enough of a threat for the majority of tenants to voluntarily vacate. They'll leave in the middle of the night, they'll feel too intimidated, or like they won't even get a hearing notice or they can't get off work or whatever. It is a very personally and politically significant event when the sheriff comes and physically removes a tenant, but it is a numerically insignificant event. 
Generally speaking, what can people do to try to push for a fairer, more just system? I think for ourselves right now, and, and in many of these neighborhoods, there's no banking on the Ford government. They've left us to, to sink here. COVID has kind of shown the fractures that have always existed in society and, and highlighted it even more. Many of these neighborhoods are, are hot spots for COVID. Tinderbox is 29 stories high, 25 across, and there was no push until tenants started to clean up these buildings themselves for even the, the city council to, to change guidelines into regulation. They're not going to do much. I think the other thing is is that we know that Ford government was facilitating a, a process that's been going on for 20 years under multiple different governments. The real conversation here are for us is, is about landlords. They're the ones who've been pricing us out of the city for, for decades now. They've been setting the price fixing what rent is like. One bedroom is now twenty is sorry twenty one hundred dollars. Is that the average? They can take the hit. This is not grandma renting her basement out. These are, are multi million, multi billion dollar corporations with multiple different uh, business ventures. Uh, I think it's something that we were talking about recently. Randy Properties or Randy Management out, out of Goodwood Park owns 7,500 units across the city. And just the last three weeks, they conducted over 100 evictions. They are, the, I think, the highest evictor in, in the city of Toronto right now, if not the, the province, and how quickly they're doing this. They were filing N4s while we were talking about everybody's in this together. They were filing N4s as early as April. And with uh, uh, an average profit of 65%, these people can take the hit. Working class people, newcomers, immigrants, racialized people have been facing the burden of this. Many of them live in rich neighborhoods. They're not seeing that the people who are, are stuck in, in, in uh, horrendous conditions with bedbugs and cockroaches. Ford government's not going to shift anything. I, I think our goal, and if there's ever a question of what support looks like, it's that there needs to be rent relief. It should not be uh, subsidized by taxpayers. It's going to be the same people who are getting affected by this. And if, if landlords want to, to do anything, it's share the cost right now. You take the burden for a while. What the majority of the city of Toronto needs to understand is these are the underpinnings of our city and have been for years. When people characterize the city of Toronto as like a finance and real estate economic engine, what they are talking about is the exact process that is being revealed by COVID to more people. These are the preconditions for the profit generation that takes place within our neighborhoods. And that's where it takes place both due to our rents and due to our suppressed wages. The people that live in these neighborhoods that are seeing higher rates of COVID, unlivable uh, ratios of wages to rents, rents that are increasing at a rate that outpaces sometimes two to one, the increase in wages. These people are also the people that are working in the long-term care facilities, that are working in the grocery stores, that are actually keeping not just profits generating but people breathing and eating right like the very lifeblood of human collective social life in this city is supported by these people and now with the burden of carrying out that labor that very critical labor during this pandemic they are also being burdened with threats of homelessness as a direct result not of even covid or their own actions but as a direct result of the way in which this real estate and housing market has been organized from decades ago. Tenants and the entire city have been pushed closer and closer to a cliff. COVID might be giving us a shove or it might be wising us up to recognize that we're actually all standing at that cliff. It's not just profit generation that bills like the mass eviction bill seeks to reinforce. It's also the powerlessness that working class people feel. And I think that in response to COVID itself, that powerlessness started to break down. 
in a very, very interesting and counterintuitive way. When people started to realize that they were needed by others for food, for PPE, for provisions, these are things that both Sam and I saw as like a cornerstone of social life within the neighborhoods that we were organizing in. People posting up, helping out. If you just gave birth, there will be people that will go source a bassinet and a crib for you because you lost your job during COVID. People are genuinely responding to this in a way that no one is really covering. Everyone wants to talk about the barbecue spot in Etobicoke or fights over toilet paper, but there is an ex a shared experience that tens of thousands of people in the city have had during COVID, which is one of solidarity and struggle and an emerging understanding of how it is that that power should be used and leveraged against people like the landlords and the politicians that have been sucking us dry for decades. So there's a lot to unpack in that interview. One thing I thought was really interesting was when Brian basically said that tenants have, you know, given up hope that the government's going to do anything to help them. So instead, they are focusing their attention specifically on landlords. Last weekend, tenant groups from three Toronto apartment buildings, including a couple in Parkdale, were protesting COVID evictions outside the Rosedale home of David Hannock, the chief legal officer for Starlight Group Property Holdings Incorporated. So David Hannock is not a landlord in any sort of traditional sense. But I think the fact that his driveway became a protest site tells us a lot about who landlords in Toronto actually are now. These landlord and tenant board hearings are happening under a climate of high-throttle investment in the rental apartment sector across Canada. Over the past few years, institutional investors have been increasingly swiping up old apartment buildings as assets. And they're, like, really valuable assets. For example... Last year, Starlight, where David Hannock works, spent $1.7 billion to buy out another apartment investment company, which owned 44 aging apartment buildings, mostly in the GTA. So lots of these buildings are from the 70s. And, you know, part of the demand for them is that A, vacancy rates are so low in Ontario, and B, we haven't been building apartment buildings since the 70s. So they're kind of few and far between driving up their price. So earlier this year, Starlight also IPO'd in the United States, where it operates as Starlight U.S. Multifamily Number One Core Plus Fund. Ahead of the IPO, this is according to reporting by Tim Collads in the Globe and Mail, the company told potential investors it, quote, can achieve significant increases in rental rates and boasted about its success in raising average rents by $411 a month at a Toronto apartment building over four years. The IPO ended up raising $230 million. I say all this because I want to show how institutional investors and high net worth individuals are increasingly the owners of Ontario's rental units. And what that does is really burst the argument that you hear, you know, from governments and from landlords themselves that it's mom and pop shops that are, you know, the ones struggling when people can't pay their rent. And Starlight, of course, isn't the only one. There are several companies, at least several companies like this, whose stock price and the dividends they pay out to shareholders are directly linked to their ability to kick out tenants and raise the rent for new ones. There are also many rental apartment-focused REITs, real estate investment trusts, that trade on the Toronto Stock Exchange and are often lumped into mutual funds that average Canadians use as investment vehicles. So we've set up a system where even middle-class people's retirement savings can be directly bolstered by evictions. 
A UN working group on business and human rights actually raised alarm bells about how the rental apartment industry is changing, saying that landlords have become faceless corporations, wreaking havoc with tenants' rights to security and contributing to the global housing crisis. I mean, that obviously all comes back to this fundamentally fucked up, albeit thoroughly dominant idea in our society that housing is, first and foremost, an asset whose value is to be maximized rather than a critical human right. I mean, it's it's no less weird than how Americans or most Americans view healthcare, you know, as just another commodity to be traded and squeezed for profit rather than as a basic necessity guaranteed by the state so that its citizens can live. Yeah, and if you read personal finance websites, which I feel like journalists should do more of because they say the quiet part loud. Uh, Motley Fool, which is a popular personal finance website in Canada, it analyzed the popularity of Canadian Apartment Properties, REIT, which owns 65,000 rental units across the country, and the website recommends investing in the fund, noting it obtained rent increases of 2.1% on lease renewals and 13.5% on tenant turnovers. So that brings us back to Queen's Park, where the Landlord and Tenant Board kind of helps carry out this asset building. So these really ramped up and sped up hearings that have been happening over the past month and a half are actually quite a bit different than how the Landlord and Tenant Board was working even last year. There was actually an ombudsman investigation into the fact that the PC government hadn't appointed enough people to the Landlord and Tenant Board and how it was basically hamstrung by the fact that there wasn't enough adjudicators and hearings for various things were just taking way too long. So the PCs did rectify that, you know, throughout this year and including over the summer by appointing a fleet of people to these positions. And these tenants groups, including including Sam and Brian that we talked to, are pointing at the background of some of these appointees. You know, lots of them don't live in the communities where the hearings are taking place. Uh, you know, you might have someone from Cornwall adjudicating a hearing in Parkdale, uh, which is not how this normally would have worked before the pandemic. It's not even just a matter of like, not. I mean, they're like, you know, if they like police generally don't live in the communities where they work and that creates the problems. Like here is this weird thing where, you know, previously for obvious practice, reasons, there'd be a geographic distribution such that, you know, people who work at the, the Toronto office will hear things they, in there. And people who work, you know, at one office in a city and will get to regularly hear applications from that area. And so I guess at least if they don't know about a place, they would presumably learn about the dynamics of a thing over time. Whereas now they see, the Landlord and Tenant Board seems to have dispensed with sort of regional distinctions altogether because everything is online and now it's all tossed into one mat. Like they've deliberately set it up for, I suppose, efficiency's sake, such that there is no necessary connection between who's hearing what and where they're hearing it, which is uh, this dystopian level of displacement that... Uh, the technology has allowed for. No, yeah, that's it's definitely weird. Bill 184 seems to have had the intended effect of prioritizing landlords' capacity to realize their investments over tenants' rights to live with at least minimal dignity. Of course, as Brian and Sam noted, this system didn't become fucked up just overnight. Most of the problems predate the current PC government, and the kinds of incremental tweaks that liberals tend to bring in never really address the core issues. But the PCs are, of course, the ones governing during the pandemic, and they've made a series of specific choices that, for a great many people, have made this terrible period even worse. But if this government weren't this government, what might support for tenants 
actually have looked like in this period? Yeah, that's a great question. And I actually think it's worth taking a minute to uh, look west at British Columbia, because the NDP government there, which is led by Premier John Horgan, did do some things during the pandemic that I think definitely aimed at averting this sort of level of evictions crisis that Doug Ford is, you know, allowing to happen here in Ontario. If not fully averting it, I think there's things that could help. Since April, the B.C. government has stepped up its social assistance levels uh, by about 300 bucks a month for anybody that was already on them. That's not much, but it's still help for people who lost part time work and you know could help them make rent. They also introduced they call it the B.C. Temporary Rental Supplement Program. Between April to the end of August, tenants who lost income because of COVID could receive up to 500 bucks a month to help with their rent. And that money went directly to their landlords and it doesn't have to be repaid. And crucially, under BC law, landlords have to adhere to an at least nine month payment plan for back rent. So next July, you know, what that does is it means that landlords can't come up with their own repayment contracts and deadlines. And, you know, like some of those clips we heard of the hearings, you know, you owe $5,000 by next week. There is government regulation in place that would at least ensure that, you know, hundreds or thousands of people aren't all being evicted in, in one month. So what about our own NDP? At Queen's Park last week, Suze Morrison, the party's tenant rights critic, which, uh, which is a neat portfolio title, put forward a private member's motion, which read, resolved that, in the opinion of this House, the Ford government should immediately take additional steps to help protect residential tenants by reinstating the temporary moratorium on residential evictions until Ontario has entered a post-pandemic recovery period and by prohibiting evictions for non-payment of rent for the period of the COVID-19 pandemic. So this motion actually passed in sort of a weird and rapid fashion on the last day the Ontario government sat for the fall sitting last week. The motion was never actually debated and also definitely should note private members motions only have symbolic value and don't actually require the government to do anything. Their biggest import is generally being able to force a debate in the House, you know, that on the record about issues that the government doesn't want to talk about, which would this one would have been a good example of that. But instead, Suze Morrison was was in the House and she was complaining that the that the government was set to rise a few days early before Christmas and was, you know, kind of arguing that they should be able to keep sitting and discuss more important stuff. And as sort of a last-ditch effort to play nice with the NDP, the PC's government house leader, Paul Calandra, called for unanimous consent to just like pass her motion, which they did, but it was never even read aloud in the House, which is not usually how that works. Which is why I had the privilege of reading it aloud myself, as opposed to deferring to a clip of uh, Ms. Morrison herself. So whether or not they... PCs actually heed any of the requests in that motion is really up in the air. The Federation of Rental Providers of Ontario, which is a lobby group that represents lots of corporate landlords, uh, was quoted in Now Magazine this week saying that they have been in talks with the province to create a rental assistance program similar to the commercial rent assistance program that's available for small businesses in Ontario. I mean, who knows if this is actually something the PCs are thinking about? I really can't say either way at this point, but I guess at least the NDP raised the issue in the legislature even though they, you know, actually kind of barely got the chance. So if people aren't able to remain in their homes, where are they supposed to go? The perpetual crisis that becomes an especially acute crisis during the coldest months of the year 
the idea of people not having homes or shelter is not surprisingly top of mind for more people than those whom it would normally directly affect. I mean, affordable housing is difficult to access at the best of times, which these are not. And similarly, Toronto shelters, when they do have capacity, are generally of a condition that might be described as last resort. So it's unsurprising that encampments have emerged in parks as a sort of natural evolution of, I guess, everything we've talked about in this episode. There have been, I mean, a couple of recent-ish court decisions, one about standards and shelters, where the court, the Superior Court, found that the city had uh, breached its obligations, that they reached a settlement with uh, sanctuary ministries and a number of other co-plaintiffs. But arguably the more interesting one was when uh, the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty and a group of uh, of unhoused people basically took the city to court in an effort to get the, the province to have an injunction that would stop them from closing down encampments in parks. And it came down to the the judge in that case, uh, basically trying, you know, having to weigh, you know, what is the city's right to maintain the parks in a sort of a safe way that everyone has access to, you know, in question of like, have they provided alternatives for people versus, you know, people's right to have a certain, you know, security of the person, people's right to be safe and free from disease and violence. And he ultimately declined to grant the injunction because the city has shown that they're taking steps to house people and places and you know they've gotten hotels and things that they don't city does not therefore have an obligation to let people camp out in parks but it had a really interesting i mean you know as any judicial decision does there's some caveats but there was a really interesting one that he put in near the top which basically just emphasizes that in dismissing the motion as i'm not directing the city to enforce its bylaws and remove encampments from city parks that's up to the city It must be recognized, he wrote, that the situation is evolving. My decision is based on evidence that dates from the summer months when the incidence of COVID-19 was low, the weather was warm, and the city had specific concerns with particular group encampments. By that time, the city had also taken significant steps to respond to the COVID-19 threat in the shelter system after the first wave in the spring. It is now October, and the incidence of COVID-19 has risen in what is described as a second wave. As is the case in non-pandemic times, the city will have to consider how and when to enforce this bylaw, having regard to the continued availability of safe shelter spaces and the impact of the encampments on the parks and the public. Which points to the, you know, the, the fundamental issue of that, yeah, there's the turnaround time with everything, with weather changing, with the virus going up and down, how anyone could have a court decision that is responsive to the moment is just, it's it's hard to imagine. It's hard to contemplate. And you'd also don't necessarily want a judge to start, you know, write a for like a, a decision that speculates on what things will be in the future. Well, and of course not all of the people that are evicted during these landlord and tenant hearings are going to end up on the street. I mean, it's probably the majority. It's more likely that they, you know, have to move in with friends and family, potentially live in a car for a bit, take up in a crummier apartment, move their kid to a different school, you know, relocate out of the city of Toronto to, you know, places like Ajax or Hamilton, uh, Brantford, where there are cheaper places to live, but lots less services, and that these places have growing homeless populations of their own. It's not necessarily encampment versus you stay in your home, but there's lots of ways that people's lives can get completely screwed up by 
being evicted for not paying a rent, as again, the premier had said ahead of that, that that's okay. You know, his advice was to pay your other bills first, get food on the table and worry about rent later. And then the entire system that followed was completely designed to screw people that did exactly that. I mean, the fact that the people who chose to take the premier at his word are the people who are feeling the worst effects of it. There's a certain cruelty to it, to something that may have come off or may have been a casual comment that he made that has had devastating consequences. I mean, it's not like these issues wouldn't be arising if he hadn't said that, but it definitely seems like it's more than a few people who believed him when he said that and perhaps didn't look at whether Ford actually followed up with anything that would make it true. Notwithstanding all the foreseeable disasters we have already uttered and described in discussing length, what are the other foreseeable disasters of the month? Well, Jonathan, I wanted to say that your your best case scenario that you presented last month is slightly coming true. Uh, you had said that you were hoping for an alternate universe where Doug Ford miraculously removes himself from the COVID-19 response team and leaves all deliberations and decision-making to public health experts. Now, that's not exactly what's happening, but Doug Ford is removing himself from the province's television screens every afternoon. As of last week, the premier's office announced Ford is no longer going to hold his daily press conferences unless there is important news for him to share, which... Hard to say what that says about all the other news he's been sharing. Does that mean that all the previous news was important? He did one time detail a shipbuilding contract between some Hamilton ship company and a BC ship company that had been made about at least like two and a half months before he uh, made that announcement, which had nothing to do with the government. So perhaps that one wasn't important news. The Auditor General's report was certainly fascinating. That absolutely confirmed everything that was suspected about him taking the lead, not just in communications, but in decision making around the pandemic uh, and uh, health experts not steering the ship, which is once again, not at all surprising. That's evident to anyone paying attention. But the exquisite and funny and sad details laid out in that report uh, was just it was a very nice... Um, just a really solid confirmation of why things were going the way they were going and how that happened. Yeah, the craziest part was that she revealed that his public health roundtable that he always talks about was a conference call with 500 people on it every day. Like, How do you possibly make decisions in that scenario? And they didn't keep minutes, right? That was... No, like, no. <laughs> or even know who was talking necessarily at a given time. So that, I mean, it explains a bit why they think the LTV can function that way. Yeah, that's chaotic. Uh, so what is your foreseeable disaster for this month, Allison? My foreseeable disaster is kind of the potential for inequality with the vaccine rollout. The first Ontarians have got their COVID shots uh, in long-term care homes. It's long-term care home staff, um, which is great. But I feel like we are just like on the precipice and probably not just in Ontario, across the whole world of just like rounds of news of, of wealthy people or people close to government power getting access to the vaccines before frontline workers and, and you know, other members of the population who are supposed to, you know, get the jab first. So I'm just kind of awaiting a, a series of scandals along that front. But I'm also slightly worried that Doug Ford and his family are going to go to Florida for Christmas. I don't know that they are. Not saying he will, but they sure do go every year. And we did just find out that Brian Mulrooney 
he had a, a, a medical uh, emergency over the weekend. He's fine, but the I think the real news that came out about that was that he was in Palm Beach. So statesmen are <laughs> still heading to Florida. So yeah, I mean, it used to be easier to track the, the Ford family movement than they, most of the daughters set, and his wife set their Instagram accounts to private. But I imagine you probably have some ways to, you're already in there. So what is the best case scenario of this, Allison? That everyone has a happy holidays and COVID doesn't go wild after that. That would be great. What is your foreseeable disaster of the month? Well, there was a concerning thing in the Hansard from last week under the title Wearing of Hat, in which the deputy speaker, Mr. Rick Nichols, said he recognized the member on a point of order, the member in this case being MPP Goldie Gamari, who then said, I'm seeking unanimous consent from this house to wear a Santa hat for my member statement, to which uh, the speaker basically put a vote. The member seeking unanimous consent agreed, agreed. I don't know. I can't, I can't even think of a, of a bad thing. I think the best case scenario here is that everyone in the legislature starts wearing Santa hats all the time, and then they're perhaps halfway to looking like a very large version of the Canadian Supreme Court. But I enjoy these festive moments, and I'm sure it wasn't even that funny or that interesting when it came up in the legislature. But the most delightful thing I've seen this past week is, frankly, in the Hansard, where the, that exchange comes under the heading, Wearing of Hat. I think it was funnier when the Raptors had won the NBA championships and then all of the MPPs got permission to wear Raptors gear in the chamber for a day or two. It was like multiple days. I'm sure in practice that was funny, but was it under anything so delightful as the title wearing of hat? That was by The Doug, a podcast about investment vehicles over housing. Happy holidays. I'm Jonathan Goldsby, and you can find me on Twitter at Goldsby. I'm Allison Smith, and you can find me on Twitter at, at Queen's Park Today. Our producer is Demilola Oname. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt, and our theme music is by Nathan Burley. Our podcast is listener supported. If you like what we do, go to wagthedoug.com slash join or click on the link in the show notes.